Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. today in Los Angeles uh, with Alex Rosso. Well, he's the founder of uh, Odyssey uh, Headphones, one of the greatest headphones uh, that I've ever had the pleasure of listening to or using. And he's currently building uh, the audio division at Shinola. Alex, it's great to, uh, to finally meet you in person. Thanks for having me. <laughs> and we're here somewhere quite special, aren't we? Um, yes. We're not hanging out in some Starbucks cafe in Los Angeles. This, well, can you describe a little bit where we are? We're in Studio A of the Village Recorder. Um, I'm very fortunate uh, to say that my uncle owns the Village Recorder. Um, and we're here in a very famous mixing room uh, in front of a Neve console. And, and, you know, when I walked in, I saw the records. I mean, some of the greatest uh, rock albums of all time have been recorded here, right? Yeah, uh, you, you name it. It's probably been through this building somehow or another. I knew I'm from Pink Floyd to Elton John to Coldplay to Lady Gaga to Dr. Dre. I, I was blown away by the room that Stevie Nicks used to record in, and uh, <laughs> it was it was you could really feel that. I mean, the energy in this place is is something else. Yeah, the doors open by themselves sometimes. Uh, it's just like this is like Hotel California come to life. <laughs> There's definitely a, a, in any any historic studio. I think there is a spirit that lives within the the facility, if you will can sometimes feel it and I think it uh, it can even help uh, with some of the performances but that's my uh, wish wash dreaming thank you <laughs> so I, I, I of course came across you uh, through my own journey uh, with audio but uh, I'd like to hear about some of the story about how you decide to start a headphone company because um, I, I was fascinated to discover that you not only previously worked at Technicolor um, mastering movies uh, movie sound but you come from a long line of family that's been involved in uh, with sound and, and um, pictures as well. Yeah, so a little bit about that. My grandfather, Harold Rawson, um, he, uh, he shot Wizard of Oz. He was a very famous cinematographer. My dad, Ed Rawson, uh, also followed the footsteps. Uh, I, I took different path, which was music. Uh, so at about age 11, I started playing percussion, played in ensembles, whatnot, and ended up uh, going to a year of college and deciding that I really just wanted to get into a studio. So got into a studio, uh, recorded Disney cartoons for a few years when I was 18 at a place called LA Studios. Um, from there, I went into a startup called Software, uh, where we built one of LA's premier data centers from the ground up in the Marina Del Rey. and. Uh, ended up selling that company, took a little bit of time off, and went into Technicolor, really, hmm. and helped pioneer uh, digital cinema distribution, mastering, and built out uh, facilities for them. Right, so this was at the time when uh, there were there were just the um, theaters were just starting to put in hard drives and satellite yep. connections. Yep, uh, about 2000, 2001, I remember we did uh, first, uh, presentation of uh, Star Wars that was quite interesting and from there it just never stopped it was uh, I mean it, it, film was not it's film is not logical even though there's benefits to it and it's very sad that uh, 
you know, a lot of the film labs did close down. It, I mean, it's it's awful, but times change, and uh, now you know that you can present a, a film exactly how it should be every time and control the playback. Uh, once once theaters went digital, how did that change the way that sound had to be mastered and designed? Um, well, there are limitations on the actual tape for for some of these theaters, so the old ones. Um, God, I mean, it, it changed a lot. It allowed you to have 128 channels, so that's how they're doing Dolby Atmos and whatnot. Um, but how did it change for the mastering? I, I couldn't tell you exactly how it changed for mastering on on the full mix. I would do the, the mastering at the final stages before it would go out to theaters. Hmm. Um, but you'd probably want to talk to a, an actual <laughs> mixer for that one. I won't definitely not claim that I do know how it changed it, but all I know is uh, we pushed very hard to do a rollout of digital cinema theaters and projectors, and it was a big, big rollout. Uh, from all the studios to invest, all the the actual theaters to invest, and they're still doing it. So, you know, it's I think it's about seventy thirty uh, digital to film now, and continues to grow. But I stopped doing that about four four years ago now. Right. Uh, so, what was that moment when you said, "I'm I'm going to go into the headphone business"? Um, that moment came when I met. Uh, a guy who was very into material science and could actually um, we partnered and came up with a planar driver, a thin film circuit uh, that he helped invest in and it was basically we started building a line arrays um, for concert sound and I left the country for the first time to take that to India and realized that uh, would never get into that business because there's some big boy players in that business that yeah. you just can't compete with if you're very small shop building concert sound, even if it outperforms everything out there, um, didn't have the pockets to get into that. So miniaturized the driver, put it into a $30 Natty headphone, and it was uh, the best thing we had heard. So we continued on that path, and really it, it also was um, some of the, I guess, motivation was also to try and find a solution for QC of digital cinema um, packages because to build out a theater costs you know a couple hundred thousand dollars where really the bottleneck it where I was you know my department was actually being able to QC enough of the stuff. What do you mean QC? Uh, quality control. Right. Yep. Um, make sure there are no ticks, pops, anything in the any artifacts. So you actually needed some better monitoring headphones to, to actually do your work? It was an opportunity at that time, it never really happened, but it was an opportunity that we saw that that would allow for real QC in a professional setting because of the accuracy of the headphones. Yeah, it's it's grown into a lot of other things, but it, it's really a a lot of professionals use the headphones to reference and mix and master, and it was kind of easy for me to inject that tool into that industry because. Luckily, my uncle, my, my wife, just my network was, it was, we were poised to actually inject, and it happened. The, the strangely, it really became embraced as a brand, not just by professionals, but, but this sort of quite unusual community of, of uh, head-fi, or <laughs> high-end audio files with portable gear. And, and I was kind of amazed when I discovered this community myself. I mean, uh, prior to this, I thought Beats headphones were good headphones. Um, 
but then you know I, I'd grown up in Hong Kong and you know I'd, we'd always had small apartments there so people always had these quite obscure uh, almost arcane um, audio setups designed for headphones but um, that that community really sort of gave birth to I guess the wider acceptance of this product didn't it yeah so um, took a prototype to one of the head five meets here in Los Angeles in 2009 um, just coincidentally when we had this uh, there was a meet took it there uh, we didn't have a big setup and we had a DVD player um, a crappy headphone amp and then our <laughs> our prototype planar headphones which there weren't many out coming out at the time um, planar and you know thin film drivers have been around for a long time but they're what is that that's like a it's like the membrane of your ear right is it like the diaphragm that it's like a thin thing that vibrates it's a thin film circuit so that is actually the thing that actually moves the air to produce the sound right so that you sandwich that in between magnetic field apply voltage and it goes back and forth right um, so back to can jam um, headfi is a now is the largest audio site in the world um, and it's a great community. Without that community, we definitely wouldn't have had the success or the as quick success success as we we did. Um, so we brought that prototype um, to this meet, and ended up having a line to listen to these headphones because they were really that good, and there wasn't much out there. And it was really just we came from the community, and so I think there was kind of an acceptance there. Um, community welcomed us as a manufacturer and knew we were not doing it for monetary reasons we were doing it for our passions um, so after that meet we kind of just continued progressing uh, would work you know moonlit for four years while running departments at Technicolor running you know <laughs> their technical division of, of digital cinema uh, you know, worldwide, I guess you could say I was support for, for pretty top level support for anything that would happen in digital cinema. If the screen was dark, I would know about it. Right. Um, and ended up building this company that, uh, you know, to this day continues to, to have success. Um, wasn't easy, but we did it. And then, uh, you know, a couple of years into it, uh, formed a strategic, strategic partnership. Uh, which allowed me to actually uh, leave Technicolor and really solely focus on Odyssey. And after getting us into the Apple Store um, about a year, about a year and a half ago, I, I decided to step down from C as CEO uh, from Odyssey and posted a resignation letter online and got a call from a company called Shinola, uh, who asked me to build out their audio division and so that's what I'm currently doing. People are fascinated with, with Shinola I think <clears throat> because of their origin stories and, and I guess the birthplace of Detroit uh, but also because they're sort of leading this resurgence of you know beautifully made almost old world values applied to products. Yeah it's a it's a very it's kind of an anomaly similar <laughs> to Odyssey in my opinion. Yeah. It really it's something that's widely accepted um, very quickly. I mean, they do definitely, they are being very strategic strategic with what they do, but it is very honest and very, uh, you know, they do care about quality, they care about people. My boss started the company as a philanthropic effort to create jobs. He, He's the founder, he's founder of Fossil Watches, so 
he also stepped away from his role there and um, started this company, you know, uh, kind of as a bet to create watch movements in Detroit. Nobody thought he could do it, and he really wanted to do that and create jobs at the same time, and uh, here we are. So they, they've done well over the last few years, uh, well enough to actually be able to expand into two different categories, and this is one that they're very passionate about. So what's your vision now for Shinola Audio? Uh, I mean, we know they make amazing watches and bicycles. Uh, what do you think they could be for audio? Um, simple, beautiful, high-performing, uh, quality products, really. I think that's what it is, kind of making it easy, easier to open uh, high fidelity up to a broader audience uh, with both their their reach. Um, so not just another Bluetooth speaker. No, no, because <laughs> the world doesn't need another one of those. No, and I think that's. I mean, I think that's. Uh, modestly speaking, I think that's why they brought me on is to help guide them into not just being another fashion brand trying to do an audio product because right. that is destined to fail if you do that. You've seen it many times with a lot of collaborations, etc., uh, that it just stick on a heavy price tag because of a brand name. Yeah, um, and it's still made by Foxconn and Shenzhen. Correct, and, <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with Foxconn. There's, that's with an amazing company, um, <laughs> but I think they, we are doing it authentically. Uh, we are going to build this stuff ourselves. We are going to create as many jobs as we can uh, with Craftsman in Detroit. Um, and I think what's different is they're actually they're they're putting their money where their mouth is. Right. It's not just a, a, a false marketing strategy. We're actually building the gauntlet of high end, not high end, but right now mid level. Uh, hopefully, if we can improve costs, we can pass those savings along down to the to the uh, customer. But but believe me, this is still high end for people that have grown up on Beats headphones. Sure, I suppose, but how many <laughs> pairs of Beats headphones have you had to buy because they break? Yeah. Which then equates to about 1500 bucks. Uh, you're right. So in terms of the lifetime value of a Beats headphone. Yeah, that's why I, I always try to get people to understand that when we're charging $1,000 for a handmade high-quality product here in Los Angeles, um, to say, you know, you're only going to have to buy these once and we stand by the product and the same thing will go with Shinola. I mean, customers first and they they definitely have the same mentality I had at Odyssey, putting the customers first. Um, so first thing I did was kind of look into their customer service and they definitely took care of their their customers. There were, I remember when, when I first bought my LCD 3s, they were like this cult item. No one had any stock of them and I, I had to drive three hours into the middle of, um, I think it was just almost out to San Diego, <laughs> to someone's residence yeah. uh, to find the last pair. He must have been California. a special guy. <laughs> um, it was, uh, so I set up that entire distribution network and was probably one of the first people that caught wind of them that were local. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, we with that we had you know six month waiting lists for lcd3s for a long time and gosh that was when we first launched i don't know if you'd gotten before or after our our recall but I remember launching that product and going through one of my first recalls and that was fun especially <laughs> ha also having a six month waiting list yeah. you know, on top of it couldn't make them fast enough uh for a long time and think still sometimes there's there's bottlenecks but yeah so, so with with Shinola, I mean, one of the things you're working on there at the moment is a is a record player. Um, yeah. 
it's sort of it's sort of strange that we're here in the 21st century and 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 the first product of an audio company is is a, is a, is a an old technology but but I was amazed Teresa I think last year was the first time in history that the well for a, for a long time that the record sales actually exceeded CD sales yeah it's a, I mean exceeded CD sales I would hope so I mean I don't know when the last, I haven't bought a CD in a long time I, don't I think Japan is one of the last places on the planet people still buy CDs yeah, it's like having a DVD collection. Yeah. Or a laser disc collection. Yeah, oh, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Especially if it's Roger Rabbit, right? Yes. <laughs> um, well, what, um, why are we seeing this power of vinyl now? It, it can't just be hip, hipsters in Silver Lake. I mean, there must be, there must be more going on than, uh, than just that, than a retro obsession. Um, I think it's the experience of actually taking the time to, you know, put the effort into listening to your favorite music, uh, connecting with the artist. Because it's a physical act. You have to actually take this record out and drop you have the to needle. And monitor it, unless you have an automatic turntable. Um, so I think people are, are finding therapy in that, in a sense. And they're, it's not just streaming in their earbuds. Um, I think the act of doing that is something that that was somewhat stripped away from a generation. I know I grew up listening to vinyl. Um, have a very large vinyl collection uh, and to me uh, it kind of leads into a more hippie topic of uh, the difference between analog and digital signals uh, more importantly pulse code modulation or bits being thrown at your body and actually having the opposite effect of a therapeutic listening session so so, so you think we, we actually have a, a direct physical response to bits being thrown at us Yes, and I think, I mean, I won't get too deep into it, but I think it's it's helped cause somewhat the ADD society that we live in. Um, consumption, quick consumption, fast consumption, but um, I know there's a, Dr. John Diamond did a lot of research on this and found that listening to, had the opposite effect on our muscles and uh, therapeutic benefits from listening to music, because I do believe sound and music and we are all just vibrating a certain frequency so i think that sound can heal our bodies and i think we'll start to see a lot more research go into that right um well, it makes sense in a sense that i mean our, our ears are analog and, and we we have almost like a planar our technology is, in our ear our right? body is your hair is yeah you sense throughout your whole body so i think uh, a digital signal being blasted at you, whether it's through your home speakers or whatnot, um, does have an adverse effect. Don't get me wrong, I listen to Spotify, I listen to digital music all the time. Mm. Uh, that's to get my quick kicks and to listen to music. And Regardless, mentally, I think it does, you get that same dopamine drip, but physically, I think it has a different effect. So I think the resurgence, I, I like to think the resurgence, I doubt it is this, but I like to think the resurgence is the therapeutic effects of an analog signal. Well, if not that, I like to now think that we can blame the Snapchat's generations, the excesses on, on bits being thrown at them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, start of the MP3, the iPod revolution, um, it's pulse code modulation, pulse code. Yeah. So I think, uh, you know, there it's not just all digital, DSD uh, has uh, the positive effects of an analog signal as well because it's just one bit so you're not being bombarded with a bunch of bits and tensing up your muscles so so the actual what does that mean i mean it, 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 the one bit means that the the structure of the music is closer to a, an analog signal yeah i think to put it easy way um 
you have an analog signal and then postcode modulation chops up that signal yeah to different bits it's like chopping the wave into into like little yep. like lines yep and so uh, the easy way i think of it is uh is that is like a machine gun being blasted at you and compared to an analog signal coming from a tape dsd or um vinyl right or a live band right and, and dsd has an interesting history because uh, it was part of sort of sony's failed attempt to launch super audio cds like almost 15 20 years ago right yeah i mean I'm, I'm, from what i recall it was it is their archival medium so that they were really somewhat ahead of the the game uh years ago and they have a lot of their stuff has been transcoded and archived into that format dsd and i think it's served them very well now i mean i i know in the audiophile world there's you know big People love DSD, and I think they're. Uh, I I collect DSD files now. Where those DSD com files come from, who knows? And I think that's the kind of big predicament in um, certifying master quality sound, if you will. So there's a lot of people trying to say they have high qual high high res or high quality or whatnot, but we really don't know where that file comes from. Right. So it could come from a 16-bit rip. Uh, from vinyl, <laughs> so you can yeah. press vinyl from your your CD master and then uh, rip that. <laughs> <laughs> you really don't know. There's no way to unless you follow the tape to get recaptured, remastered, reencoded. Um, for me, it's very hard to know where these files come from. This this emergence of the HeadFi community is, is really extraordinary. I mean, I. I mean, I sort of first encountered this to some extent, you know, um, in Asia, you know, where people have small apartments, so they invest in headphones. But this is sort of coming at a time when you have a whole generation who's grown up really listening to streaming music and bass-engineered headphones. And, and, and at the same time, you have a community now which is sort of investing a lot of money uh, in very high-end portable audio. Uh, why now? Is it just because bandwidth is caught up to the point where you can actually actually download a massive DSD file, or do you think we're sort of we we now care more about resolution? Well, I think it's also the price of these things. You can get a portable system. You can get for less than two grand that competes with a fifty to eighty thousand dollars speaker system and rig. So it's the resolution you get with with portable rigs. Um, it's the freedom and flexibility that you get if you're an enthusiast you can go out and buy seven different rigs instead of buying one stereo system and you can have those different so for me there's no best uh, there are measurements that can prove that things perform better um, but it's really subjective music is subjective it's the same thing hmm. so having the different characteristics of a portable rig compared to another or swapping out a cable and hearing that difference that's kind of to me, that's the that's the hobby. That's the enthusiast where you definitely want to see what different manufacturers' characters are. That's what I think it really is. It's like it's different. Uh, manufacturers are like musicians in a sense. Yeah. So they, and there's something about these um, these new small manufacturers that are coming up, which reminds me of the sort of the 1970s computer homebrew community. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there there are literally guys in their garages building audio companies. Yeah, I mean that's literally how we started as well. Yeah. Um, it you, and you can do it um, because there's you can 
if you're one dude in a in a garage and you build something that's great and people love it and people adopt it you can continue to build that and hopefully you have a business sense enough to make sure that it can sustain and grow um i think that's just the hard parts of getting to those next levels of manufacturing where it's like well a lot of people want this <laughs> we have a six-month waiting list what the hell are we going to do you know it's it's really having the determination to continue pushing forward but yeah i know a lot of my friends work out of their own labs and create amazing products that are, are coveted by many people it, it's uh they're, they're quite sort of you know steampunk contraptions i mean when i first put together my stack of portal electronics trying to convince the airport security at tel aviv airport that they were not they, they were not impressed by the idea of high-end audio i had to leave yes this is studio a come on in everybody <laughs> hi hi did i scare you this is my I'm uncle this is your uncle okay. nice hi hey i'm mike hey nice to meet you What's yeah. up, guys? I'm sorry you've been here for so long. You've been waiting for Should me? Leave it. <laughs> Let it roll. Huh? Have you? Let it roll. Yeah, we've been waiting for you. Sit down. Oh. Well, we, were just, we were just talking about it. You came at a good time. Yeah, we're in, doing an interview. Now you're on. Oh, did I interrupt you? Well, now, so now, now you're part of the timing. interview. Okay, what are, we do, what are we interviewing about? Well, we, we were... We were <laughs> <laughs> huh? <laughs> He's the best, by the way. Go ahead. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Tell no. Tell ask me, him about the studio. How yeah, you, tell me just about how you end up taking control of this place. Uh, when I was running, or when I was booking and promoting the Greek theater, I met a beautiful girl who became my friend. And uh, in 1995, she came to me and said, can you help save the place that I grew up in, that my father started, because it's about to be liquidated. And um, her father was a guy named Jordy Hormel, who was the heir to the Hormel uh, family meat company, who came out here in 1967 to, he and their three brothers, of which he was one, they were all brilliant pianists, just naturally gifted musicians. And he came out here and bought this building in 1967 to do piano cues for some early American TV shows called Lassie and... Um, God, another show I just forgot, but but Lassie and another TV show. And he bought this building, which is a 1920 Masonic temple. And uh, at that time, and many years after, it was the headquarters for the Maharishi. And he built this studio that was sitting in Studio A to do his piano cues for these tracks for Lassie and Rin Tin Tin, <laughs> two, two, two great old American TV shows in the 50s. Uh, he married Leslie Caron, one of the most beautiful actresses in the world, who was the star of An American in Paris, uh, and bought the other half of the Will Rogers estate across Sunset Boulevard. Uh, and this studio, when people found out this very wealthy man was building a really state-of-the-art studio, <clears throat> everybody wanted to be here, including Bob Dylan and Steely Dan, and all these records were done in this room. Bob Dylan's Planet Wave, Steely Dan, Heart, uh, The Stones did Angie. Uh, Goat's Head Soup, which they recorded here and in Jamaica, I believe. Huh. Uh, and so the word got out, and everybody wanted to be here. And as the place kept going, he built other studios. Uh, and it developed this huge legacy. And in 1988, I think he moved to Phoenix and bought a little 65,000-foot house. <laughs> and the people here 
uh, developed a fondness for a certain amount of drugs uh, and uh, were just kind of here. Police stations at the corner, so when you're doing drugs in the police station at the corner, you take garbage upstairs. You don't want to go outside to take the <laughs> trash out. So when she, when I met her, uh, they were thinking on how to sell the studio or, or liquidate it because uh, this once great place had fallen out of favor because the people here were just kind of living off of him and not really trying to be as creative as they could be. So I came in at her request with a very famous producer named Al Schmidt, who's won 25 Grammys. He's just done the new Bob Dylan record. Uh, he just did the McCartney record. He's, he went all the way back to Count Basie. And we looked around and the place was a dump. It was really smelled bad, looked bad. Uh, and I said, this is not gonna work. And I saw a record on the wall, which is Super Tramp, Breakfast in America. Of course. And I said, okay, let's give it a shot. So it's been a great resurrection. Uh, that happened 20 years ago. He passed away uh, about nine years ago, and eight years ago I bought it. And that's that long answer to a short question. <laughs> well, it's, it's an amazing place. Uh, it's, a, it's been a great honor, actually, to be here, to you know, see where all these great it's records are. It's an honor are. to have you here. I have <laughs> not ever met anybody that lives in Istanbul yet, and I think it's very cool. <laughs> well, thanks, guys. Yeah. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds.